my name is Marie White, and I'd like to welcome you to the White Bikini. Joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banson. How are you, Nicholas? I'm doing great, Marie. It's good to be with you again. Today is, I should say more this week, is Queen Elizabeth's 70th Jubilee. And the question I'd like to talk about today is, does the monarchy still matter? And I think looking over her long legacy, she does play an important part of what I now think is a waning importance in the world. I think that's a really apt way of putting it. You know, she's from a generation where there are very few members of her particular cohort. So waning might be an understatement. However, we can delve into that a little bit further. Just a couple of fun facts to start off about Queen Elizabeth. Are you ready, Nick? Let's go. Queen Elizabeth II was born at 2.40 a.m. on April 21st, 1926. Her parents were the Duke and Duchess of York, who later became King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, truly known as the Queen Mother. She was crowned queen on June 2nd, 1953, which is yesterday. That's an incredible span of time. And thinking about this in the 1950s, her coronation was watched by a TV audience of 20 million people. That's, that's an incredible number. That's incredible because was there even color TV then? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, TV essentially came into its own during uh, pretty much the end of World War II into the early 1950s. And I don't think we really start to get color TV until the 1960s. Could be wrong on this, but that's my impression. So, you know, when you think about it, in the developed world, for the people that had the infrastructure to receive it and had the resources to afford it, it's an incredible number of people that watched that historic event. And back then, there's really, there wasn't so many choices on TV but when people watched it, it was really over the excitement of a post-World War II era that they wanted to think of better days. I think so. In some ways, maybe it's not as significant for some as, as perhaps for others, but it's kind of like uh, the moon landing, watching millions of people around the world watching the moon landing. It was this grand communal experience for so many people. This is really more, obviously, of my mother's generation. And my mother was someone who really honored and adored the queen. I think that's, that perspective is perhaps, as you said, it's, it's definitely waning. She is the longest reigning monarch ever in Britain. She even beat out Queen Victoria, who was her great grandma. As queen, she's been served by how many prime ministers? Well, I think we discussed this before, so uh, I'm just not even going to pretend like I'm that smart. <laughs> with the answer that you gave me, which she's been served by 14 prime ministers over her reign. The top names that come to mind are Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher. And she did have a very close relationship with Winston Churchill. And I do believe Winston Churchill did serve more as a father surrogate after the passing of King George. And it makes sense. You know, you think about World War II for Britain, it was a it was an existential fight. It was a fight for their very existence. 
So it brought everyone together in a common effort. And I think Churchill being older generation, it stands to reason that he would perhaps, uh, in maybe in a ceremonial role, if not a practical role, fill that father figure duty, if you will. Her favorite dogs are corgis. Of and course she, they are. <laughs> they're always running around. They're so small. She <laughs> even invented a new breed of dog when her corgi made it with a dachshund belonging to her beloved sister, Princess Margaret. And the dog became known as the Dorgy. Any well, thoughts on that? that? <laughs> well, <laughs> who, knew who knew Liz was a dog breeder? You know, go Liz. The final fact, which I find fascinating, she's the only person in the UK allowed to drive without a license, and she still drives to this day. God bless the queen. I have no words. Is that safe? I can't imagine that it is, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's a couple milestones in Elizabeth's life that takes her from coronation to where we find her at the 70th Jubilee. The first, of course, is her coronation on June 2nd, 1953. That did start her first step into taking over as queen. I believe that she was in a state of shock. Her father at the time probably seemed older. I believe he was only in his 50s when he passed. You know, for bygone generations, um, 50, 60 years old, was a, actually a remarkable age. I think with the advent of modern medical science and therapies, 50 seems rather young, but for that generation, it was an advanced age. And they had seen so many people pass due to World War II, so I think they saw every day as a gift. Absolutely, and I, you know, World War, you can tack World War I in, into that experience. She didn't witness World War I directly, but as I mentioned before, there are millions of British World War I vets who came home injured and affected by war. And so that bled into the experience. Her first state visit was to West Germany in 1965. And in the midst of extreme social and political changes, she was the first official visit by a British royal since 1913. Her visit, yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I was just, it is. I was just about to add, though, that, you know, to put it in some context for some of our listeners who may not uh, be aware, this is in the height of the Cold War. So there was an East Germany, communist East Germany, and then there was a free democratic West Germany. And so there was a larger geopolitical relevance to the visit to West Germany. Her visit marked the 20th anniversary of the end of World War II, and it was really a symbol to help reconcile the two countries. Absolutely, and, and it's a shame that it took so many more decades before Germany finally reunited as one nation, but these things happen incrementally. Yeah, when I read 20 years, I was a little startled by that. I thought that's a long time to ignore a country like Germany. The division was profound. The Iron Curtain, I think Winston Churchill had warned about, had descended across Europe. And Germany, East and West, was the heart of that division. 
And I think looking back today, you really could not go that long with social media, the advent of 24-7 news. The world was much more quiet then. It certainly was. It certainly was. And I think the level of exposure that people of social prominence, royalty, people of high wealth, the type of exposure that they experienced today is nothing like the way it was back during the early years of her monarchy. And it has to be for someone of her age, the transition into really so many new worlds has to be startling. I think so. I, th just think about the transition that she witnessed. She probably grew up not too long removed from the years of horse and buggy transportation. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I don't mean that, yeah, I mean that uh, derisively. I, I mean that in terms of just the amazing span of her life where there are people riding horses and buggies to for basic transportation to the modern age of space shuttles and rocket ships and internet and, and all the technological wonders that we experience and that are part of our lives today. And I follow her on Instagram and I know that she doesn't post, but I'm happy to see her embrace the new changes, even though someone else is probably running it for her. I'm glad that she's out there, even at her age, trying to stay part of the relevant world. And I say amen to the queen. I agree. I don't think it's helpful to deny reality. And this is where society is. And I think it's important for the monarchy to adapt to reality. Otherwise, it becomes even more irrelevant than perhaps it already is. The next step in her reign, unfortunately, is what I consider the worst thing that one of the worst things that ever happened is the Aberfan disaster in 1966 in Wales. Okay, go ahead. I, you know, so I don't remember the history about this, it, perhaps in the detail that you do. Um, but yeah, I'd love to learn more about it and, and the details behind it. I really believe Aberfan could be its own podcast. I was, it was brought to my intention, which I'm embarrassed to admit when I was watching The Crown. I had heard briefly over the years about a mining disaster, but in a very quick synopsis that the people of Aberfan deserve probably a little more respect. It was a Welsh mining tragedy that claimed the lives of 116 children and 28 adults. The long and short of it was Wales in Aberfan, South Wales was a mining company. And throughout the years, the people in the county were complaining about the mine, which if you ever see pictures, is literally in the center of the, the, the town. You could walk up. One day it exploded and all of that hot coal came down. And unfortunately at the bottom of the mine was a schoolhouse. And the kids were overtaken with coal and soot and unfortunately almost 130 lives more were taken it's a horrible story made more horrible by the fact that the queen refused to visit Aberfan for eight days she sent prince philip at first and yeah even and i think it i'm sorry i didn't don't interrupt your flow, nope. but i if 
correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding of this is that there is this tradition among the crown that the queen, the head of state, is to be detached from these uh, tragedies. That is, that's my understanding. Is that what you found out as well? Yes. And I think in 1966, to me, 1966 was a turning point for the queen and it was a turning point for the world. What was working in the 1950s was not working by the mid 1960s. Prince Philip did go, but there was such an outcry that she did go eight days later and the view is horrible and it's the first time in history and probably never happened again the queen elizabeth was moved to tears but i think it was the first knock of the monarchies it was starting to tarnish and they were starting to look a little not connected yeah i i agree and i i like i said i don't remember the specific circumstances behind the tragedy just the broad outlines of what happened and some of the sort of the political optics behind it and you know what if the queen if the head of state of a nation cannot bring herself or himself to visit and console her subjects if we want to get into that kind of vernacular what's the point britain is a constitutional monarchy but their parliament really handles all the important governmental functions the the queen and the the crown is a figurehead and this the people of britain through millions of dollars in taxes are paying for her lifestyle and her family's lifestyle and i think the idea that she couldn't bring herself to console her people who were undergoing such a tragic circumstance you're right. All right. I think that was a watershed moment in the in the history of the monarchy in Britain, and at least in the modern era. And I think even though people loved Prince Philip, the Queen has the Queen is the Queen Mother. They wanted to be consoled by a mother figure, and I don't think Prince Philip had that warmth about him. I think to to make it a little bit more relevant, there's a place for the Vice President of the United States, and there's a place for the President. Agreed. And and I think it's a, it's a, it's a similar expectation that there are certain events, certain tragic events, where the leader of the country, the head of state, has to step up and be the consoler in chief. If I can borrow a word uh, from Obama, you, you just need to be the chief consoler. Moving on from Aberfan, 1970 was a very important year. It was a royal tour of Australia and New Zealand with Philip and Princess Anne in 1970. And it was the first time that she broke royal tradition when she took a casual stroll in greeting crowds in person rather than waving them to them from a protected distance. It was known moving forward, which you've heard this expression as the walkabout. Yes. It's, it's, you know, looking back on that history and comparing it to where we are today, I think I've come full circle in the sense that you have an important dignitary visiting a foreign nation and the idea that they would be exposed like that with 
our sensibilities around mass shootings and violence seems almost scary. You, I, I, my, my instant reaction is like, no, no, don't do it because who knows who's in the crowd? Who knows who might take a shot, especially with our history here in the United States of assassinations, you know? And I don't necessarily want to go to that negative place, but that's a reality. So it's an incredible gesture. And I'm not sure that security detail would allow something like that to happen, you know, in today's environment. I 100% agree. Next is the Silver Jubilee, which was in 1977. There was nothing really happening, but just that by 1977, she was already celebrating her Silver, Silver Jubilee. And then to me, and I think everyone can agree, the next most important thing that happened to the monarchy was the wedding of Prince Charles to Lady Diana, Diana Spencer in 1981. Yes, I totally agree. I know that you're a little too young for this, but on July 29th, 1981, an estimated 750 million people in 74 countries tuned in to watch, and I was one of them. I sat there with my mom on the couch. I didn't, of course, I don't remember watching it directly. As you said, I was too young, but I do remember, of course, the subsequent rebroadcast of the event. And, you know, I, I think the thing that stands out is Diana's long train and the just the, the the pomp and circumstance around the entire event I just think even as Americans people outside of a monarchy I guess it was kind of cool to see those things that was my impression at least I think for me Diana is only a few years older than me and though I wasn't normally caught up in the pomp and circumstance of a big wedding there was an energy around Diana that excited everyone more than the pomp and circumstance. That's exactly what it is. I do stand corrected. I think that's what it was. It was really about Diana. It wasn't about the history. It wasn't, as, as you said, the pomp and circumstance. Like, I think Diana was the first really cool monarch, certainly for our generation. She was beautiful inside and out. She was outgoing. She was empathetic to the human condition. I believe that Diana was really that first conversation and maybe a little too late to save her marriage, but of mental health. There was always whispers that she had an eating disorder. She had anxiety. She was having outbursts. And I remember there was always a shameful approach to it rather than an empathetic one. Because I believe Princess Diana took a lot of childhood trauma into her marriage and unfortunately into the monarchy and changed it. I think you're right. I don't think Diana represented or wanted to represent that stiff upper lip generation of Winston Churchill and the silent generation. And I think when you have these colliding ideas, colliding ideologies as to what is proper, I think that's why Diana suffered. That and she was in a loveless marriage. So I think there, there are perhaps many factors, but I think that's one that we need to consider. Jumping from 1981, they had a good decade, the 1980s, as we discussed, we were all still kind of living in this bubble. But by 1992, the queen has established that year as anus horribilis. Charles and Diana's marriage continued to deteriorate. In 1992, they decided to separate. Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson also divorced. Princess Anne divorced her husband, Mark Phillips. 
So what was kind of a compact decade by the early 1990s, these marriages, which had seemed strong, were now kind of falling apart. And I believe what was a light tap at the door became a knock that the monarchy was changing. I think so. And I think it perhaps reveals uh, a slight insight into the toxicity of royal life and how forced everything was. That's my impression. And then late that year, the, a fire broke out in Windsor Castle, destroying more than 100 rooms. Oh my gosh, I, I totally forgot about that. There was a lot of damage done. And by 1993, I think that fire was symbolic of worse things to come. I think it's right. I think it was a harbinger of some bad things to come down the line. To me, the most important turning point for the monarchy that set them back, but at the same time set them forward, was the response to the death of Princess Diana in 1997. I agree. I think that was uh, that was an ugly moment. Those are my words, and, and perhaps I'm being a bit uncharitable, but that was an ugly moment as far as I'm concerned in terms of how the monarchy responded to her death. I thought that cold, detached response was so foreign. People all around the world who had grown and fallen in love with Diana. Public criticism of the royal family grew after the divorce in 1996, but after Diana's car crash in, in Paris in 1997, as we know, the queen initially remained at her estate in Balmoral and refused to fly the flag at half-mast over Buckingham Palace or address the grieving nation. And it took a few days. And she finally did come on TV. And I do believe that she was probably more encouraged by her grandchildren, Prince Harry and Prince William, more than anyone to do it and address the nation. And I think it saved the monarchy when she came out and did that. Good for her. That was incredibly petty. That was incredibly childish. You know, we attribute these grandiose qualities to royalty, but there is a pettiness to it. There's a silliness to it. There is a lack of connectedness to their lives that, as you said, as we said at the beginning or the onset of the, the discussion is, what is the relevance? If you can't mourn the, the passing of the mother of your grandchildren, what good are you? What purpose do you serve? What kind of human being are you? I don't care about royal pro protocol. Yeah, and if you can't, if you can't embrace that reality, then there's something, it's, it's an indictment of whatever it is that you think you stand for. And Princess Diana truly was the people's princess and no one needed a monarchy around her to honor her. Uh, yes, yes, I'm in agreement with you. Next was the Golden Jubilee and it was the 50th year on the throne, which is just incredible that that's 20 years ago. Time, oh wow, <laughs> I'm not even gonna say it. It's just, it's incredible how, yeah. how quickly it passed. Yeah, 2002 is 20 years ago. Unfortunately, that year, her younger sister and her mother died within weeks of each other. 
so again you go on a few years and it seems that the monarchy is I guess just like in life is having these hits that I think as you get older are harder and harder to bounce back from yes and I think what what we would characterize as bouncing back is having relevance in the world and being a beacon beacon of leadership to the rest of the world at least that's how I see their relevance if it exists at all that year Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth traveled to more for more than 40,000 miles that year including visits to the Caribbean Australia New Zealand and Canada so that decade she really spent a lot of time on many different coasts I think to get out there and reinvent what the monarchy means to people after the death of Princess Diana and after the death of the Queen Mother. I think that was necessary. I think our advisors implored her to go out there and be the people's queen, if you will, because otherwise that impending sense of irrelevance, I think it would be even closer than perhaps it is now. The start of Elizabeth's second half century came with more positive relations between Britain and the royal family. Prince Charles did marry Camilla Parker Bowles in 2005, and enough time had really passed since Diana's death that people did accept Camilla more and more. In May of 2011, Elizabeth and Philip visited the Republic of Ireland at the invitation of the president. Though the queen had frequently visited Northern Ireland over the course of her reign, this was her first visit to the Republic of Ireland and the first by a British monarch in a hundred years. That to me is incredible, that passage of time. Well, there is that, that, that whole Catholic Protestant stuff in Ireland and the IRA and the bombs. That, that doesn't, it really wasn't that long ago. It really wasn't that long ago where Ireland was beset by terrorism and death and strife uh, hopefully we can see what has transformed in ireland as a beacon to the rest of the world that are plagued with internal strife next we jump ahead which i do believe is the next important thing is the birth of prince george in 2013. it was a, her great-grandson prince george alexander lewis of cambridge and i think the birth of a new child to william and kate gave that energy of a future new fresh start and a beginning. Let's hope that's the case. Let's hope that this generation is not as beholden to antiquated ideas and outdated protocols and they embrace people with a sense of authenticity. George's birth marked the first time since Queen Victoria that three generations of direct heirs to the British throne were alive at the same time. That is remarkable, and I think it just adds to her legacy. She will be remembered for many, many years as one of the more relevant and more interesting monarchs because of the length of her reign, if nothing else. So Nick, do you feel that the monarchy still matters? No, I don't think it really matters, but I think it is an interesting artifact of a bygone era. I think as people live their lives in the United Kingdom and throughout the rest of the world, monarchies or especially figurehead monarchies like the British crown, they're not significant to the way people lead their lives. But I think they're like 
and I don't mean to belittle the case, but they're almost like mascots. They're like sports team mascots where it can be a source to unite people. And, and I think that is the relevance of the crown. Are you comparing the monarchy to Gritty? Yes. I, I think the monarchy still matters, and I say God save the queen. God save the queen. With that, you and I agree. Thank you for joining us today on The White Bikini. And I'm not proud of my address In a torn up town No postcode envy But every song's like gold teeth Grey goose dripping in the bathroom Bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room We don't care We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams But everybody's like crystal Maybach Diamonds on your timepiece Jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold we don't care We aren't caught up in your love affair And we'll never be royal It's a one in our blood That kind of looks just ain't for us We crave a different kind of buzz Let me be your ruler, ruler. Friends in the eye, we've cracked the code. We count our dollars on the train to the party, and everyone who knows us knows that we're fine with this. We didn't come.